Take your Bibles, 1 John chapter 1. That's uh, 1 John chapter 1. That's probably in the cleaner part of your Bible. Doesn't get a lot of attention, but go to the back cover, turn a left, handful of pages, and you'll find the first epistle of John. They were talking about it being Valentine's Day. I'm sure glad I got married and I don't have to worry about that anymore. I'm just seeing if y'all listening before we start today. Church I came from had a, uh, at one time, had a trailer that we pulled behind a decrepit old church van, one of those 15 passenger vans that kind of rusted through in places and you could see the road as you drove, you know, see it underneath you. But uh, the, the trailer that we had was uh, homemade. And uh, when you looked at it, it was very obvious that it was homemade. I think that probably some of the guys who helped Moses get the children of Israel ready to leave Egypt probably built that trailer. And uh, my dad used to call it the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, it was so old and so holy that, uh, you know, nobody could mess with it. But um, the church also had a program for boys. It was kind of a cross between Royal Ambassadors, which many of you know, RAs and Baptist Life, and Boy Scouts. And they just kind of built their own little curriculum there. And they did a lot of camping and those kind of things. And so uh, before I got there, some of those guys went on. I, I say that so just for liability reasons. Uh, before I got there, these some of the men in the church, a couple of the deacons took these boys on a camping trip, and they'd gone up to, I think, the Lost Maples area out in southwest part of Texas, and um, they took this old church van and that old church trailer, and as they were making their way home, uh, as the story is told from my friend, his name was Lance, uh, Howard, both of these guys were deacons, and Howard, the deacon, was driving, Lance, the deacon, was sitting in the passenger seat, and Lance said that he caught some kind of... Uh, movement out of his peripheral vision. They were on the interstate somewhere south of San Antonio before you get to the cutoff at Three Rivers. And somewhere in there, Lance said he glanced off to catch whatever it was in his peripheral vision. And the Ark of the Covenant was traveling alongside the church van. (laughs) And uh, he says before he could really register what that was, uh, you know, just... Physics will tell you that that's not going to happen for very long. And sure enough, the tongue of that trailer dropped down enough that it caught something and it flipped sideways and just went rolling into the median off on the side of the road. Now, I use that as we begin today uh, to make this basic point. Connection is critical in the Christian life. And many people, many Christian people have hitched their wagon, so to speak, to any number of things that ultimately will lead them to a catastrophe. And when it comes to the way we live in the church itself and life within the church, um, we can very easily get unhitched or disconnected from the vertical relationship that we have, that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when our relationship with Jesus Christ gets disconnected, it's not that we lose our salvation, it's that we lose our fellowship with him. And when that happens, invariably, our 
horizontal relationships are going to get disconnected too. One of the ways that you tell the health of any church is to look at the people and watch how they treat each other. Well, actually, that's not the best way to say it because if you're just going to watch how they treat each other, um, you might not see below the surface. If you'll listen to how they talk to each other or about each other, then you can begin to get a little bit of what it is that's going on at that church and especially how their spiritual health is. Here's a good truth for you, it's, even though it's not a happy truth. You don't really have to work hard at hurting other people. Just be yourself. Now, here's why I say that, okay? Because every one of us, and I'm, I'm really not trying to pick on you, although I can promise you before this sermon's over, some of us are going to go, that daggum preacher, he's hacking on us. Uh, you should have heard it, what I had planned before God woke me up in the middle of the night and said, you need to kind of tone that down a little bit, son. Um, see, all of us have this human nature, this sin nature. And by definition, our sin nature seeks to control our, our whole environment, which means it seeks to control our relationships. And, and so what happens is when we get disconnected, when a vertical relationship with Christ and our fellowship with him begins to suffer, then we start moving back into that shell of who we are, which is our sinful nature. And that is for self, and that's for me, and that's for my own well-being. And that old saying, that's what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it, and what's yours is mine, and I'm going to get it. That's, that's how we tend to operate. And so you don't really have to work hard at hurting other people. If you'll just be yourself long enough and keep Jesus out of the mix, then you're bound to hurt people. And I say all of this because we come to a, a, a time in the life of the church in America. And it may very well be part of our church here, but I rather suspect the better way to say this is it's part of the church life in America. And that is that maybe we, we tend to get away from emphasizing the vertical relationship and the fellowship that that brings. Uh, and we begin to live at the level of horizontal relationships that just break down. I've been in a lot of churches through the years, and churches specialize at hurting people. That's a horrible statement to make, but it's true. So as we move forward as a church, we want to work hard at not being typical. So we're going to come to this study of 1 John, and it's written by the Apostle John, and as we come into the book of 1 John, he's writing it to this group of Christians, uh, and, and he has a lot to say to us about life in the church. And as we work through this, he'll, he'll have a lot to say to us about our horizontal relationship and being connected with Christ, as well as our, did I say horizontal, our vertical about being connected with Christ and the horizontal about being corrected with one another. So here's some truth for us to hang on to and as we begin into this series in the book of 1 John. Where love is absent, selfishness produces isolation. When love vacates a relationship, that relationship grinds into two people who just live for themselves and gradually but certainly isolate one another. The opposite of that is a better truth for us to hang on to, and that is where love abounds, connections 
thrive. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in this little letter of 1 John. But as we come into it, and I've told you before, one of the hardest sermons to preach for a preacher is the one getting into a series. There's so much ground to cover and so little time to do it. So what I've tried to do today is put uh, some of the passages of Scripture that we're going to look at into the slides, and we're going to fly through a lot of that stuff. We'll camp every once in a while so that we make sure that we get the message of what we're seeing there. Um, so we start off in 1 John chapter 1, and we begin reading in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's talking about Christ, and more specifically, he's talking about his personal relationship with Christ. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So here we begin with John. And before he even gets to the message that he has for them, he establishes his credentials. He says to those gathered churches, what I'm about to write to you grows out of my own personal experience with Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of verses that I want you to see that are over in chapter 3, and I've got two Bibles up here so that uh, you ever seen a, a uh, two-Bible preacher in one sermon. Here we go. In, in 1 John chapter 3, there's a couple of other verses I want you to read. Here's the first one. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 18, he picks up the same idea, and he says... Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And so what John is saying here as he launches into this little book is what I'm about to say to you, I'm saying from personal experience and the message that I will continue to drive throughout the course of this writing to you is love has to be the theme of your life. That sounds great. Matter of fact, I would encourage you to listen with both ears to the music that is on the radio or if you listen on the internet or how your CDs, whatever. Listen to how many songs in our world today talk about and point to love. It's a great idea. Matter of fact, it's, it's, a, it's simply a divine plan if you can just pull it off. But we have this built-in struggle with pulling it off. And John knows that, and so he begins to write, and he says, this has got to be what drives you. Let's love each other. It's probably a good time for me to stop and remind you, this is my own personal uh, attempt to get my mind around what love is. It's used a lot. We talk about it a lot, but we don't always think through what we mean by that. So let me go with this working definition for us. Love is an individual as he denies himself and invests himself into someone else. And in doing that, even and often at great cost to himself, as he invests himself into somebody else, it enables that person to experience life at a level that they never could 
alone. That's the picture of love. That's best embodied in Jesus Christ on the cross who gave of himself at great cost and he invested in you and me for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he invested in you and in me. And in doing that, he allowed us to experience life that we could never experience on our own. That's love. And so John says, let that be the guide for how you do church, if you'll allow me to say it that way. This is a point. This is the point where that, uh, that part of me that... Uh, is not really so willing to just submit, okay, the sinful part of me, in other words. That's the part now where I go, okay, John, what qualifies you to make that kind of claim, that kind of command? What qualifies you to tell me how to live my life? That's the cry of the 21st century church. So let's look a little bit about who this guy is. Let's pull a little background on who he is. And if I can, I'm going to read it off of there instead of having trying to flip through this other passage, here, uh, this other Bible. Luke chapter 5 gives us the first insight that I want us to see. This is as Jesus is calling his disciples. You can go back and get all the context together. I just want to kind of lay it down. John was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. For he and all who were with him, that's Jesus, uh, Excuse me, Simon Peter is really kind of the focus here. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. In other words, this guy was just like you and me. He was just a fisherman, nothing special about him. Nothing that would cause us to look at him and go, oh yeah, for sure. This guy, you know, in high school, he was the one voted most likely to succeed. This is the guy that we expected to see on TV somewhere for doing great things. That's not John. He's just a normal guy, just like you and me. Son of a father, of a mother, a brother of another disciple. He's just a fisherman. Luke chapter 9 verse 28 gives us a little bit different perspective because now we see that just as a point of reference for you, we know that Jesus didn't have just 12 disciples. Now, there are 12 that he specifically identified and pulled them close to himself. And you guys come with me in a very close kind of relationship. Uh, but we know that there were a bigger circle of followers who are out there. And, uh, you know, we think of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and some of those other ones there. Scripture tells us that there were lots of other people there who were followers of Jesus. But there was that 12. John was one of those, as we just saw. But inside that 12, Jesus seemed to have an inner circle of disciples, three guys that he regularly would pull off for some of the meteor uh, lessons. And John was one of those three, as we find. This is the account of the transfiguration, and it says, uh, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on a mountain to pray. And that's the picture where Jesus is transfigured. We know Simon Peter says, oh, it's a good thing for you we were here. You remember that whole thing? John was there. So John's a disciple, but he's also one of that inner circle of guys. But there's another passage that I want you to see. Here's how we know. This is, as far as we can tell, in the Rotrammel family tree, this next passage is as far back as we can take it. John's last name had to be Rotrammel, as you'll see in this passage. Mark chapter 3, 
in verse 17, James, this is where Jesus is, or actually Mark is identifying these disciples. And it says, James, the son of Zebedee, we've seen that. And John, the brother of James, hmm, to whom he, that is Jesus, gave the name Boanerges. That means the sons of thunder. That's Rotrammel. That's got to be Greek for Rotrammel, the sons of thunder. Or maybe it's your last name slipped in there. Here's what I want you to get from this, all right? Scripture's funny. If you look at places, you'll find there's some pretty good humor in Scripture. Notice, first of all, notice the nickname. What do you think a guy has to do to earn the nickname Son of Thunder? And do you think that's a nice thing? Now I want you to look at who gave them the nickname. You catch that? Jesus did this. So I can just see these guys are walking around out, you know, moving from place to place. And Jesus is, you know, he's watching these guys. It's not that they didn't know them already, but he's watching them. And he's watching them relate with one another. And somehow, somewhere, Jesus goes, you know what? I'm going to start calling you Boanerges. And the rest of the disciples had to go, oh, that's awesome, Jesus. Yeah. What kind of personality do you think a son of thunder carries? Well, maybe this will help you a little bit with that. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 40. We're going to spend a little time here because unfortunately I find way too many church people here, including myself. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Let that settle in. You know, it's so easy for churches to identify and separate. You ever know anybody who just refused to accept anything from another Christian if it didn't agree with exactly what they thought? You ever been part of some kind of an enterprise that involved more than one church? And those churches just could not get along because they just, well, I mean, after all, they're not us, are they? I uh, lived in a town in New Mexico that had the greater town, not just the city limits, but everything around it, was about 30,000 people, had 30 Baptist churches. Baptist, I mean, there were other churches too. I don't know how many there were. I couldn't get over the 30 Baptist churches in a town that size. You know why there's so many churches like that? You know why there's so many churches here in this area? Because some people say, well, you know what, that group over there, no, they're just... They're not us. But you see, we're not loving enough to say they're not us. We say, well, you know, they teach some weird stuff. Well, maybe they do teach some weird stuff. Look again at this, at this passage. Teacher, we saw this, and we took it on ourselves to police the area for you. 
How many Christians do you know that helped Jesus out with that? See, I want to take it off of the different churches now, and let's put it inside of one church. How many people inside churches, oh, let's just talk about us, since that's who we are. How many people in groups in our church say we're going to draw hard lines, we're going to divide ourselves because he's not, she's not part of us? I wonder what Jesus thinks about his children who take it upon themselves to police his family for him. No wonder people run from organized Christianity. But Jesus said, way to go, John. I didn't like those people anyway. Does your Bible say that? If it does, you really should consider getting rid of that Bible. I know that's the church. Well, let me say that. That's the Bible of the 21st century church. Okay? If you don't agree with me, and I don't even care what the issue is, if you don't agree with me, uh, then Jesus doesn't like you either, which is heresy, just for the record. It does not say that Jesus died for the ones that you like. It says that Jesus died for all, right? I was reading this morning. A guy by the name of Bonhoeffer, and I've quoted him here some, but he was talking about living in community, and one of the things that he talked about is this very issue. How can we, who are the body of Christ, assume to be the mind of Christ and do things in Christ's name that Christ would never have a part of? But you see, now we're back to that description about where love is gone and where love vacates the premises of a church, then separation and isolation is the rule of the day. You want to you wanna really let your pastor? No, let's don't do this. That's way too personal. Um, it's too late. That cat's out of the bag. You know how I can often tell the spiritual pulse of people who talk to me what they complain about and so we assume the mind of Christ and we assume the position of Christ who is head of the church and we set out to fix things and so we have denominations instead of the church and we have rivalry instead of connection Well, that's too personal. Let's move on. Surely John gets better. Matthew chapter 20. Now you see, finally we get to the end. Now we got a few counselors in here. Most of them will, I don't know if they would tell you this or not, but you know, sometimes, not not as often as people want to make it out to be, but sometimes the reason I'm so messed up is because of my mother. Now, my mother listens to these things, so let me say that again to make sure she gets it. No wonder I'm so messed up because of my mother. Now, I don't believe that's true, just for the record, okay? But I kind of think that's part of John's problem. Mark chapter 9, 
or excuse me, Matthew chapter 20, what we find is that John is the son of a doting mother. Don't miss the comedy of this passage, even though it's really not funny at all. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, time out, stop, full stop. Matthew 20, how far into Jesus' ministry is he now? Do you think these guys are punk kids? I don't think so. Okay? Now, they might have been late teenagers when, when Jesus called them to be disciples, but even if that's the case, these guys, according to Jewish law, are grown men. Can you see the picture? Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. The, can't you just see that? One of Jesus, I mean, the, the, the mother grabs one of these boys by the ear and he's dragging him up to Jesus like this. This is comical beyond comedy for me. This picture, Jesus is doing the ministry of his life and he's got these disciples and he's been pouring himself into them and he's teaching them. These are the guys that in just a handful of months he's gonna hand over the entire enterprise of the Christian faith. He has that much confidence in them. John and James, inner circle guys and here comes the mother dragging them up to Jesus. And she says to him, to Jesus, kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And Jesus said to her, now let me read it the way we normally read it, okay? Because we give Jesus a lot of credit. We should. What do you want? But I've talked to mothers before. I've had mothers bring their children up to me before. I've had doting mothers. You think this is the first time Jesus dealt with this lady about them? And so... I think that maybe, just maybe, the human part of Jesus went, what do you want now? But I could be wrong about that. What do you want? And she said to him, listen to her request. In a crowd of disciples, she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. In other words... Let me put it in the vernacular of the day. She says something like this. Now, Jesus, you know these other knucklehead disciples. They're not up to the task of being in charge. And you know my sons. I mean, my sons. You know my sons. And Jesus going, yeah, the sons of thunder. I know your sons. (laughs) But this mother, full of pride. By the way, that's not a compliment full of pride, drags her two grown men, son, before the teacher and says to him, you know what? You'll do well to give my boys first shake. Let me tell you something. That's the cry of a sick church. When people posture themselves or their organizations or their little groups within a church to say, we are number one in the kingdom of God. Now, they'll never say it that way. They were way too refined to say it that way. But that's the message. And so she brings them up. No wonder we see some of the things we see in John. Jesus answered to her, you don't even know what you're asking. And now the picture is that he turns to those two boys Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now we see that their mother has done an excellent job in teaching them to be 
proud and divisive. Well, of course we're able to drink what you drink. Where pride rises to the surface, love connection breaks. So now my question seems especially valid. Who is this guy over in the book of 1 John to say to me, love one another? You don't even love people. Why should, who are you to tell me that? So we may be thinking who this guy thinks he is, and I've saved the best one for last. Now we go to Luke chapter 9. Most of you will know this story. This is my favorite of all the John stories in Scripture. And when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. The people did not receive him. And when his disciples James and John Rotrammel saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? In other words, we'll just nuke them right now. That sound like a loving guy? Does that sound like a guy who has sacrificed every bit of credibility in standing before a church and saying, you guys need to love each other? Jesus turned and rebuked them. You know what's saddest of all about that is we've trained generation upon generation of generation of church people who claim to be Christian, to nuke people who disagree with them or who are not part of their little group. And the head of the church turns to rebuke. This guy, John, had some issues. And if we just left it there, we would be well within our rights to say, you don't have to even listen to this guy. But there's more to this. So there's a, here's what we find from John. Remember how he started off this little piece, right? He starts off First John by saying, I'm going to tell you what I know. I'm going I'm to walk you through stuff based on what I experienced, that which we have seen and our hands have handled and our ears have heard and our eyes have seen. And, and, and we've, we've shared life with this one who is eternal life. So if all we see is what we have seen of John, then now we're left with the problem because that's not the picture of Jesus that we need to get. But there's another passage. We don't have time to go to all of this stuff, so I'm I'm just going to kind of fly through it. I don't think they're even in the slides. Um, Acts chapter 4 gives us an account of John and Simon Peter Uh, after Jesus has gone on back to heaven and they've been arrested and the same guys who were responsible for whipping the crowd into a frenzy that caused the Romans to be willing to to crucify Jesus, that same group of religious leaders now has turned their attention to the disciples and John has been arrested. And these religious leaders don't know what to do with these guys. They don't. And here's a little verse, chapter 4, verse 13, I think it is. It says this, that when they, the religious leaders, saw these guys, they took note of them 
that they were ignorant, unschooled, ordinary, regular. They're fishermen. But, it says, they took note that they had been with Jesus. Let me tell you something. When you spend time with Jesus, people know it. You know the corollary to that? When you don't spend time with Jesus, people know it. And so John, in his gospel, what did he hear from Jesus? What, what gets us to the change we find in 1 John? John chapter 13, verse 31 and following, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. The same guy that John spent time with and he writes relative to in 1 John, that same Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, love one another, especially you sons of thunder, Rotrammel boys over there. John chapter, 13, uh, John chapter 14, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. In chapter 15, this is my commandment, love one another. Here's a truth for us because the whole point of this message is um, how are you connected? If your connections on the horizontal plane of life with other people are a little bit rocky, I'll almost guarantee you that there's something on the vertical plane that needs attention. Here's a great truth. John embodies this for us and I'll close with this. Jesus will always meet you where you are. If you're a son of thunder or a sorry son of a gun, Jesus will always meet you where you are, but he will never let you stay there. So how has your life changed? Come on up, Brian. How has your life changed? Is there evidence in your life today that Jesus Christ is still working on you. I got to tell you, as hard as this sermon has been for you to sit through, you should have heard it before. I woke up literally in the middle of the night, woke up, and it was as if God with a megaphone said, you better tone it down, son. I'm pretty passionate about this because not a day goes by, it seems, that I don't talk to somebody who's been burned by church people. How tragic. You know, Jesus was the most healing guy in Israel he couldn't walk into a town without people just flocking to him I have to believe that when we reflect him accurately oh yeah there'll be some divisions there's no question about that not within the church though the division is that marked line but even that lost people are drawn to life that's just a, that's just a true statement reasons we've got so many jacked up evangelism schemes is because we've let go of the relationship part that draws people to Christ. So how is it between you and Christ? Are you the same person you were 20 years ago? Are you the same person you were 20 days ago? How is Jesus changing you? And what's the effect on the relationships around you? And so, Father, my prayer is that in your incredible mercy and through your limitless grace, you will do whatever you have to do for us to get this right. Even if you have to kill us to help us get it right, let it be so. 
for the kingdom's sake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.